It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Here's the show. Hello, this is Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library, and today I will be talking about the life and career of one of the most legendary of Hollywood actors, John Garfield, a method-style actor who well represented the working class in his many roles while becoming a huge star in the 1940s. When I think of John Garfield, I think of the tough but sensitive Jewish kid from the Lower East Side with a bit of a chip on his shoulder. He's the underdog, the guy from the streets, who's trying to better himself without losing himself or betraying both those around him and where he comes from. That was always the struggle, the single most defining aspect about him, both on screen and off. It was also his tragedy. He always seemed to play characters who somehow managed to lose, even when they were winning. The perfect persona for roles in film noir, the key movie genre of the 1940s. Through the force of his charisma, sex appeal, and soulfulness, Garfield made losing seem glamorous, even heroic. It's there in his very first film, Four Daughters, in 1938. And it's there in his remarkable series of post-war movies, like Humoresque and Body and Soul, which he made before his death at the impossibly young age of just 39, in 1952. Everybody who loves the movies loves John Garfield. Garfield is often considered to be the first rebel actor in Hollywood film history. The Marlon Brando before Marlon Brando. The James Dean before James Dean. Julie, Julie Garfield, as he was called throughout his adult life by both friends and family, was born Jacob Julius Garfinkel on March 4, 1913, on Rivington Street, the heart of the Yiddish Theater District in the Lower East Side of New York City. His parents were first-generation American Jews who had, just four years before Garfield's birth, fled the pogroms of Eastern Europe. His father, David, was a clothes presser by trade and a cantor in the synagogue at night who was immersed in the culture of the old country. But they did not get on, and Garfield was later to describe his father in a most unflattering light, as a man who struggled to provide even marginal comfort for his young family. Hannah, his mother, was just the opposite, warm, outgoing, and supportive of her young son. But a hard life took its toll, and following a difficult pregnancy and the birth of Garfield's brother Max, she died in 1920, when Garfield was only seven years old. After Hannah's death, Garfield's father remarried and moved the family to a tenement in East Brooklyn and then to the Bronx. Unable or unwilling to take responsibility for his sons, he would parcel them out to various relatives in the next years. And by the time he was a teenager, 
Garfield had drifted away from him. We can only speculate that their troubled relationship must have caused Garfield considerable pain. And according to the actor's biographers, his father would remain indifferent to his son's enormous success, and that he may never have even seen any of his son's movies. As a boy, John Garfield has been described as outgoing, like his mother, with endless energy, a great mop of thick hair, and an engaging smile. Small for his age, he soon had to pick up survival tactics on the streets, learning, as he would recall, and I quote here, all the meanness, all the toughness it's possible for kids to acquire. End quote. He was apparently pretty adept at petty theft, with, and I quote again, quick hands, and I could run like hell, in his own words. Garfield was a member of a street gang in the Bowery and in Chinatown. He would later say, every street had its own gang. That's the way it was in poor sections. You know, the old safety in numbers routine. At about this time, his early teens, people started to notice Julie's ability to mimic well-known performers, both bodily and facially. And some said that everything he did, he did better if he had an audience before him. In many ways, Garfield was, as a young man, a real-life dead-end kid with whom he would star in one of his most famous early films, They Made Me a Criminal, in 1939. Crucially, as a boy, Garfield found a kind of refuge in those street gangs, which gave him a camaraderie and sense of loyalty that he was missing at home. They also gave him an ethos, a code based on loyalty and protecting one's own that would guide major aspects of his future life, including, most crucially, his actions during the last years of his life. But as a young man, Garfield's potentially bleak future took a turn for the better in 1926, at the age of 13, when he came under the wing of one Angelo Patry at public school number 45, which was a school for problem kids. Patry was able to channel the boy's aggression and high spirits into both amateur boxing, and Garfield, of course, would later play a boxer in several of his movies, but also performing on stage. Previously a very poor student, his scholastic record improved solely because it was a requirement for being eligible to take part in plays. His benefactor was also instrumental in the young Garfield receiving a scholarship to the Heckscher Foundation, where he first learned the fundamentals of theater work. Garfield was later to say of Patry, for reaching into the garbage pail and pulling me out, I owe him everything. But however polished the actor he would become, John Garfield always kept something of a street quality about him, which really was a key, I think, to appreciating his on-screen persona. By 1930, at age 17, Garfield had landed a few walk-on parts in the theatre, 
where he was able to observe and learn from actors at work. He also succumbed to a sense of adventure and, with no acting jobs in sight, went on a sojourn of his own. Remember, this was the Great Depression. Hitchhiking and riding freight trains across the country, much like a very young Robert Mitchum did at the same time. And this all suggests scenes from his later movies, like uh, Dust Be My Destiny from 1939. For months, he lived the life of a hobo, staying in roadside camps, picking fruit, or working as a waiter at truck stops to earn some change. Once, he even went to jail for vagrancy. Later, the Hollywood publicity machine would romanticize this experience, and reportedly director Preston Sturgis got the very idea for his movie Sullivan's Travels from listening to Garfield's stories. But in reality, it was a dirt-poor, literally dirt-poor, existence, as I said, at the height of the Depression. He returned to New York in 1931 after contracting typhoid fever from drinking water from a contaminated well somewhere in Nebraska. He recovered, of course, but barely, and his heart would be permanently damaged, ultimately leading to tragic consequences. After that recovery, he worked as an apprentice with the Civic Repertory Theater in New York, attending acting classes and receiving more bit parts on the stage. Garfield made his Broadway debut in 1932 in a play called Lost Boy. Now, the background to Garfield's early acting career and the New York cultural scene of the time in general was very much that of the Great Depression, especially the radical politics informed by it and the attractive force for many of the Soviet Union, still identified at the time with the October Revolution of 1917, rather than the Stalinist terror, the heights of which were still to come. Whether Garfield ever joined the Communist Party of the United States or not, and it's unlikely that he did, he did travel in its circles, like many of the leading film and theater people of the time. And of course, his gravitation towards the left was a perfectly natural one, especially given the conditions into which he was born and grew up. 1934 was a turning point for him when he joined, with Clifford Odette's help, the new avant-garde group theater, in a small capacity at first, working backstage and then as an apprentice. At the group theater, he would form friendships that would re remain influential throughout his life, none more so than with Clifford, playwright Clifford Odets, who was an old acquaintance from the Bronx, but also Stella and Luther Adler, Lee Strasberg, Aliyah Kazan, and Harold Klerman, all important names in New York and in Hollywood for decades to come. Their aim was to present plays relevant to the times in which they lived, to convey how working-class people really behaved and truly sounded, and also to develop a new style of acting 
that would eventually become known as the Method. But the group theater would later be branded a communist front organization during the Hollywood witch hunts of the late 1940s and 1950s. And this would become a problem for John Garfield, as it did for so many other figures in both Hollywood and elsewhere. Just before his 22nd birthday in 1935, Garfield married his childhood sweetheart from the Bronx, Roberta Seidman. They had three children, Catherine, who died of an allergic reaction on March 18, 1945, David, who led a much longer life, dying in 1994, and Julie, still alive, born in 1946, and the latter two becoming actors themselves. The newlyweds took a flat in Greenwich Village, and interestingly, where Garfield's father was very religious and quite conservative, his father-in-law was a communist union organizer and quite secular. And by the time that he and Roberta had married, Roberta, or rather Robbie as she was known to everyone, had herself joined the Communist Party. Garfield would appear in seven plays for the group theater in the mid to late 1930s, including Waiting for Lefty, written by Clifford Odets, about a New York taxi strike. But he's only in the crowd scenes. Waiting for Lefty was a great success, so much so that the group theater took center stage as an artistic movement, capturing the very spirit of the times. And Odets himself became a nationwide celebrity. So opportunities for group members followed. But not everyone at the group theater was convinced by Garfield's talents. Not until his appearance in the play Awake and Sing in February of 1935, in which he was cast at Redder Odette's insistence as the sensitive young son of a Jewish family striving for a better life. In 1937, Odette's would write a play, Golden Boy, specifically with Garfield in mind, about a young man named Joe Bonaparte, torn between the worlds of boxing and the violin. Sound familiar? But more about humoresque later. The play's director, Harold Clerman, who thought Garfield was too young, chose Luther Adler for the role. Garfield was instead given the role of a free-spirited secondary character. And Golden Boy would become the group theater's most successful play. But it proved to be one of the biggest disappointments of Garfield's life. Later, when the story was brought to Hollywood, he was shortchanged again when Warner Brothers wouldn't loan him out to play the role. Instead, it went to William Holden. Garfield got something back, however, by giving a great performance as a similar character in both the movies Humoresque and Body and Soul. A little disillusioned by his experience in New York on Golden Boy, Garfield decided to take a chance on an offer that had come from Warner Brothers Studio in Hollywood. He had been approached by Hollywood before, both Paramount and MGM offering screen tests, but talks had always stalled over a clause that he wanted inserted in any potential contract one that would allow him time off for stage work. 
With Warner Brothers, Garfield signed a standard feature player agreement, seven years with options, in Warner's New York office. Many in the group were livid over what they considered his betrayal, his supposed sellout. But group theater director Elia Kazan's reaction was different, suggesting that the group did not so much fear that Garfield had sold out, but that he would succeed in Hollywood. In other words, what Kazan was suggesting was what the group really felt was jealousy. Now, after signing the contract, Jack Warner's first order of business was a change of name for the young actor, from Jacob Julius Garfinkel to John Garfield. First, said Jack Warner, we're changing your name. Garfield sounds too Jewish. But you're Jewish too, said Garfield. Never mind that, responded Warner. After some false starts, what materialized first in Hollywood was a supporting role in the movie Four Daughters. With Priscilla Lane, it told the story of a small-town family, nicely ensconced in an all-American wholesomeness. Into this wholesomeness comes Garfield's Mickey Borden, an out-of-work musician who is brash, sarcastic, and brooding. To audiences of the time, he was like a dash of cold water in the face, and his startling naturalness made all around him seem suddenly two-dimensional. And so the outsider role of Mickey Borden literally made John Garfield an overnight star. As biographer Lawrence Swindell puts it, Garfield's work in Four Daughters was spontaneous, non-actorly. It had abandon. It didn't recite, he didn't recite dialogue. He attacked it until it lost the quality of talk and took on the nature of speech. Like Cagney, he was an exceptionally dynamic and mobile performer from the very start of his screen career. These traits were orchestrated with his physical appearance to create a screen persona innately powerful in the sexual sense. And what Warners saw in him immediately was that Garfield's impact was felt by both sexes. And this was almost unique. Characterized by a real-life naturalism that makes his performance in Four Daughters more realistic to audiences, even today, than more classically trained actors, a critic for the New York Times wrote at the time, we still aren't sure if it's the dialogue or Mr. Garfield that is so bitterly poignant. Our vote, though, is for Mr. Garfield. By the way, the dialogue of Four Daughters was written by Julius Epstein, who would go on to co-write with his brother a certain movie, you may have heard of it, called Casablanca, five years later. Now, Garfield would always say that he went to Hollywood intending to fail so that he could return to New York with a little bit of money to better concentrate on the theater, his first love. But as it turned out, it would take more than 10 years for Garfield to fail. One of the reasons for that is that Warner Brothers turned out to be the best studio for him. Because they were the only studio that regularly made movies that working class audiences recognized as relevant to their own real lives. 
And it's not just a coincidence that Warner Brothers was the studio that had made The Jazz Singer in 1927 about a Jewish kid from the Lower East Side who aspires to something greater than his tenement existence. So Warner Brothers was the perfect place for John Garfield to be. I mean, each Hollywood studio had a style and a set of genres that it specialized in, right? If Garfield had been at MGM, for example, he would have been groomed for romantic leading man roles. But at Warner's, leading men were grittier and rougher around the edges. Sexy, dangerous anti-heroes and rebels. They were often short in stature, like Garfield, and not conventionally handsome, not at all. Garfield was to be a new kind of tough guy. One who fit in with Warner's stable of tough guy actors like James Cagney, Edward G. Robinson, Humphrey Bogart, and George Raft, which is why he played so many gangsters, criminals, and jailbirds during his first years in Hollywood. Like James Cagney before him, Garfield was also an embodiment of working class intensity, but also directness and aspiration. And like Cagney, his rapid-fire delivery of lines expressed a life-and-death urgency about what he was trying to communicate. Both men combined toughness with thoughtfulness. Street kids and social outsiders who were, or could be, sensitive and generous of spirit, with an anti-establishment commitment of a noble kind. Their characters always made quasi-cynical appraisals of the world, but they were rarely corrupted by their cynicism. And of course, their charm was irresistible. But there was something else there, too. With Cagney, you never doubted that he could take care of himself, not for a moment. But with Garfield, however, you were not always so sure. Where Cagney projects a, a hardened exterior, Garfield, however much the fighter, projects an inner vulnerability and self-reflection. You always sense that he had been wronged, and through no fault of his own, the fates, as it were, as his character, <laughs> Mickey Borden might say, the fates, they just hadn't looked with favor upon him. That was the sense that you often got with John Garfield. Now, Four Daughters, um, which was released in 1938, as I said, Garfield's first movie, it, it became a massive hit and earned Garfield an Oscar nomination and, as I said, established him as an, as an overnight star. Wife uh, Robbie and newborn daughter Catherine moved out to Hollywood to be with him. And uh, he and Robbie socialized with uh, liberals and other political activists in Hollywood. Um, you know, they signed petitions, uh, went to rallies for various causes. They were very political. I mean, Garfield was not an ideologue himself. Uh, in fact, he's reported to have fallen asleep at parties when politics, uh, when the subject of politics came up. Um, but it seems, though, that, uh, that uh, West Coast um, lefties looked at him in the same way that the group theater did, not taking him very seriously as a political figure, seeing him as something of a of a mascot, really, you know, congenial and fun to be with. And his growing fame would certainly have been seen as useful 
to many of the more um, hardened ideologues around him. Now, not surprisingly, Warner Brothers, which definitely, as I've been suggesting, prided itself on its lineup of tough guy actors, saw how audiences responded to Garfield's tough but sensitive doomed pianist in um, Four Daughters and simply transplanted that character and the actor, or rather the persona that the actor represented into gangster stories, prison dramas, and innocent man-on-the-run movies. In They Made Me a Criminal in 1939, he plays a boxer, a role he understood well from his youth. And again, of course, he's playing an outsider, another role he understood very well. And again, the audiences um, see in him both his vulnerability and a, a certain simmering kind of sexuality. And what makes the persona so frequently poignant is that of someone looking beyond his own circumstances for something greater in life. The studio system in the Hollywood of the 1930s and the 1940s was a little bit like a factory. And Garfield became part of the well-oiled machinery, turning out four or five films per year, none of his own choosing. They were chosen for him by the studio. Not unlike Cagney and Edward G. Robinson, his initial role had made such an impact on audiences and on, and on the Warner Brothers balance sheets as well, that he was continuously cast in similar roles as Mickey Borden, like Mickey Borden, I should say. And so, like Cagney and Robinson, Garfield would fight this typecasting, but with only marginal success in the years to come. Not that he didn't make great films, and not that that persona did not continue to carry with it a great deal of popularity and effectiveness, and arguably, if he had stretched too far beyond that persona, perhaps we wouldn't remember him as well as we do today. And that is perhaps uh, a great irony. For example, at about this time, Harry Cohn, head of Columbia Pictures, asked Jack Warner to loan out Garfield for the movie version of Golden Boy. But Warner refused. And so when Garfield turned down his next picture at Warner's, another crime movie, he was suspended by the studio. It was typical studio behavior to punish wayward stars by assigning to them B pictures. But Garfield was instead mollified with an unusual project to his liking, Saturday's Children, in which he plays a nebbishly young man, awkward with women, completely against type. It was a time when actors bound to exclusive seven-year studio contracts would not have been encouraged to have range, but to adhere to a studio-created persona. For those who thought he could only play, um, you know, criminals and gangsters and down on, you know, his luck uh, characters, Saturday's Children was a real eye-opener. I mean, 
he even wears glasses um, in his role in the movie, though he was never presented wearing those glasses in the studio publicity for the picture. But while Saturday's Children was a critical success, it was also a box office dud. So you might say that the the studio learned its lesson from their perspective after it. Uh, In 1941, he made um, The Sea Wolf with uh, a screenplay by future director Robert Rosen, who would go on to do Body and Soul with with John Garfield. Um, And in which uh, co-stars Ida Lupino, an an actress, I think, who is um, kind of the distaff side of of, um, the John Garfield persona. In 1941, they would star again in Out of the Fog. Um, Uncharacteristically, he's playing in this movie a downright evil character, which is um, a very rare thing indeed. Uh, In fact, in Out of the Fog, he's really the personification of the fascism that is sweeping across the world in this period. According to Robert Knott, author of the excellent biography, um, he ran all the way. And I quote here, A composite movie image of John Garfield, the most modern of 1940s Hollywood actors, would find him hurrying furtively through a shabby Manhattan neighborhood late at night to keep an assignation with some shady character in a desolate Edward Hopper cafe. Stopping for a moment, he would bend under a streetlight, cupping his hands to light a cigarette, his hat tilted down over one eyebrow, the collar of his overcoat turned up against the late November chill. <laughs> I think that's a, a very good, um, a very good way of, of um, describing um, the appearance of Garfield in these movies of the early 1940s. In 1942, Jack Warner agreed to his first loan out of Garfield to MGM for the movie Tortilla Flat with Spencer Tracy and Hedy Lamarr. But more importantly, it is the fatalism that comes so naturally to Garfield that makes him perfect for roles in film noir, as in 1943's The Fallen Sparrow, in which he plays a psychologically damaged veteran of the Spanish Civil War. With film noir's emphasis on visual rather than dialogue-based storytelling, The genre is perfect for Garfield, who is adept at communicating the unspoken interior life through the emotional power of just holding back and never saying too much, often speaking volumes with a look or a physical gesture. I mean, his highly expressive eyes are, I think, one of the great things about his talent. Now, John Garfield had been turned down for military service during World War II because of heart problems, going back to his um, days as a hobo when he drank some infected water from a well. But uh, nevertheless, he did 
genuinely more than almost any other big star at the time to further the civilian war effort. I mean, he became a traveling entertainer, a war bond salesman, and joined with Betty Davis in forming the Hollywood Canteen, a combination restaurant showplace where servicemen on leave in Los Angeles could, at no cost to themselves, have meals served to them by the likes of stars Joan Crawford and Lana Turner. Or maybe dance with such stars as Anne Sheridan or Joan Leslie, and even watch such musicians as Benny Goodman or Tommy Dorsey perform live. In fact, in 1944, Warner Brothers made a morale-boosting film of the same name, Hollywood Canteen, that capitalized um, on their stars and their interactions with real-life servicemen. Um, so involved was Garfield in um, the war effort that uh, the Army once asked him to do a show for um, Tito partisans in what was then Yugoslavia, and which he did, but it was something that would come back to haunt him during the um, the HUAC, HUAC hearings of the late 40s and early 50s, um, when he became politically suspect for his um, supposed political leanings. Now, I think I'm going to leave it here for now um, with part one of my two-part look at the life and career of actor John Garfield. Please join me in two weeks' time for part two, in which uh, things will take an increasingly downward trajectory personally for John Garfield, despite the many great films to come, as Garfield's life begins to resemble that of many of his well-intentioned but sadly ill-fated characters. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to Stephen Tomlinson of the Code St. Luke Public Library. Again, join me um, in two weeks' time for the conclusion to this uh, look at the life and career of John Garfield. And also next week for more movie talk, where I will um, provide some recommendations for what to watch and where to watch them. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at codesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page, or even by calling the library at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, stay safe, and bye-bye for now.